0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where we only generate good outcomes, unlike traffic engineers. My co-host today is Ray from the YouTube channel City Nerd. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for coming on. It's good to see you. So we're talking today about engineering bad outcomes. Well, Ray has a background. Well, I'll let him explain, but he brought this one up with basically the idea of, well, actually, why don't I let you explain it? Yeah, sure. I can go.
1: Yeah, I think you were about to say I had a background in traffic engineering or something. And that's somewhat true. I'm not an yeah. engineer. I'm actually a planner by you know education and licensing and experience. But the way my career went, I ended up working for a firm that specializes in traffic engineering. So I was one of like two or three planners, and everyone else in the office of like 50 or 60 was an engineer. So I ended up working on a lot of traffic engineering stuff, actually doing traffic engineering, and then I couldn't stamp them. I don't have an engineering stamp, but just having having stuff checked and be approved by the actual managing engineer on the project. So anyway, to make a long story short, I've been through a lot of traffic engineering projects, and I think I know enough about how modeling and traffic analysis works and how it doesn't work that, you know, (laughs) I have a lot of questions about how we decide what to build in our cities as far as transportation infrastructure. And I think it's under-discussed. You know, I try to talk about it in my channel, but I think the tools we use and kind of the methods and approaches we use that result in, you know, the kind of infrastructure we have in U.S. cities in particular, I think we need to Talk about it more, even as wonky as it is. And so, so I'm happy to do that today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that Strong Towns touches on sometimes, too, because it was started by Chuck Marone, who was a traffic engineer, basically designing strodes on a day to day basis. Oh, for anyone who's not familiar, a strode is a street road hybrid. It's something that is trying to be a through affair as well as a destination. And kind of the default setting for what you see all over North America.
1: Yeah. What does he call it? It's the futon of transportation, right? (laughs) Futon
0: of transportation. I do like that. It tries
1: to be a bed and a couch, but it fails at both. Right.
0: (laughs) So what do we mean exactly by engineering bad outcomes? First of all, okay, what is the bad outcome that we're talking about here? So
1: I spent most of my adult life in Portland, Oregon, which there are probably fewer bad outcomes there relative to the rest of the US. But I spent the last year in the Las Vegas area, where oh. it probably has a lot more bad outcomes than you will see in the average US city. And so what I see when I walk around a place like Vegas is a whole lot of, we can call them strodes but just to be more specific, they have a lot of like seven lane roadways. So like three lanes in each direction with a center turn lane. You almost never, in fact, I would say you would never need that in a city. You just wouldn't. But they have them all over the place. And you can walk around and see barely enough traffic to fill one lane. But they've devoted these just enormous rights of way to these incredibly large and kind of dangerously designed transportation facilities. And so that's what a bad outcome looks like to me, where you use all of this space in your cities to create these extremely wide thoroughfares that are just much wider than you could possibly need and then result in you know things like speeding and all the terrible things that go with that that's what a bad outcome is
0: yeah if it was just about you know, wasting space, you could almost be like, "Eh, well, you know, if they're going to waste the space, they're going to waste the space. But of course, this has implications, as you said, speeding. These are very, very dangerous streets. They cost a hell of a lot of money in their construction, but especially in their maintenance. And it is kind of absurd, right? I mean, Las Vegas is one of those places I don't even want to get started on, to be honest. I've been there. (laughs) I remember I counted the other day. I've been there 16 times. I used to have to go for work quite often. I would go to... The consumer electronics show in January, because I was working in the PC industry for several years. I am an engineer, actually, though the wrong kind for this conversation. I'm an electrical engineer.
1: <laughs> maybe the right one. Actually. Yeah, and,
0: <laughs> maybe. And I specialized in semiconductors, too. So I wasn't really doing anything over about 12 volts. So but yeah, I mean, these places are awful, right? They really are awful. And you don't want to be there. And I know I've walked through Vegas simply because, for example, when the consumer electronics show is on, the city is so busy, that you can't get anywhere there's just so much traffic around the convention center there's so much demand for taxis that you can wait literally 45 minutes for a taxi there's no viable public transit i mean it's just buses that are stuck in the same traffic as the cars right yeah you know you can try taking the deuce down the strip but like good luck (laughs) right so there was one year in particular i remember i was with a guy and we were like we're just going to walk every time because the walk is going to take half an hour to an hour to do but you know that's better than standing around waiting 45 minutes to an hour for a taxi and then having to sit in traffic to get to the convention center. And so I have walked quite a lot in Las Vegas and it's pretty horrible, right? Like it's really bad to walk around these places. It's bad enough to drive, but walking is just awful. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, so the way they design the roadways, you know, you have limited amounts of
0: space that you can devote to right of way
1: for roadways and if you want to have a seven-lane road, you might compromise on the sidewalk you have. You might have only a <laughs> six-foot curb-tight sidewalk, right? Right up against traffic that's moving at 50 or 55 miles an hour.
0: It really is absurd, actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the way that they design them. It's not easy to find... A street in, and I don't want to pick on Vegas too much because lots of particularly sunbelt cities are like this, but a lot of American cities. Oh, yeah, Phoenix is like this too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, lots of sunbelt cities are built the same way, and lots of like anything of that vintage. Like, and so the newer suburban areas, even our established like Midwest and East Coast cities, are kind of like this. They were designed at a time where you made minimal accommodation for people walking, probably no accommodation for people biking, and then you used the maximum amount of space that you could to create traffic lanes and the more the better because everybody's going to drive and you're better off building more than less was the mindset and so that's kind of infrastructure you have in a lot of these places
0: so where does this all come from then like you obviously have the experience with working at a firm that did traffic engineering so what's the thought process behind it because The traffic engineers that I've spoken with, I've spoken with many, I've spoken with some who are just so brain dead car brained, I can't even get through (laughs) to them. But there's other people that just seem like genuine people, but they tend to speak in a very technical language that's difficult to understand. So can you explain some of the like logic behind how we get here?
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I can go through a lot of different phases in the process, but it kind of starts with and every, probably every city period has this but particularly every u.s city the metropolitan area has something called a regional travel demand model which is like a it's a mathematical geometric network of the roadway environment and so it's got like all the what you'd call collector and above roadways on it and might have some transit links in it as well but you use that to kind of determine and project how much traffic volume is likely to use particular links on the network. I'm not going to explain how the whole thing works, but it's an iterative process that includes assumptions about land use and assumptions about people's likelihood to drive or take transit. But most of those assumptions are based on what's observed today and not necessarily what you want in the future. And so you end up with these model outputs that tell you, hey, if you don't go wide in this freeway, it's going to have level of service F or like a volume to capacity ratio of like 2.3 or something like that. It's going to give you some sort of alarming performance measure that's going to tell you, yeah, you need to go spend a billion dollars to widen the freeway. And so that's kind of one level of madness that results in, you know, the kind of investment decisions that we typically see today.
0: Yeah, you know, honestly, it's been funny to me that when I learned some of these things about traffic engineering, it all seems very technical, but more I dig into it, the more it kind of seems kind of a little dodgy at times with an awful lot of been built assumptions that I'm like, mm-hmm. little surprised someone hasn't come along and been like, really, that's that's what we're doing. So there was an article that you sent across when we were talking about this, the Strong Towns article that basically called all traffic models are wrong. And I found that really interesting. So I'll link that in the description. But there was like a quote in this in particular, a couple of quotes that I wanted to pull out from this article. Again, you know, this is I believe this article was written by Chuck. Yeah, it's an excerpt from his book, right? Right. Uh, Confessions of
1: a Recovering Traffic Engineer. But
0: that is a great book, by the way. I really, really enjoyed that. Have you read
1: it? I haven't read the whole thing. I've read pieces of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely worth reading Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. That was really eye opening to me, too. Because I did do some civil engineering courses in school, but that's really my sum total of what I've done here. But anyway, the quote I wanted to talk about here is that he says, this sounds deeply cynical and I hate writing it because there are good, decent and honest people who do traffic modeling. There are also good, decent and honest people who consult (laughs) astrological signs to predict how a marriage will work out.
1: (laughs) Conviction
0: in one's predictions does not make them any more accurate. (laughs) And I think that's the thing, you know, we're not really So much attacking traffic engineers, although there's certainly some traffic engineers I've met in my time in advocacy that I'd be happy to attack. But it is a little bit crazy how much the engineers put their faith in these models, because these models are not the best models. And they're very, very often shown to be wrong. Yeah, (laughs)
1: they're not good. They're also the best thing available for the purpose for which they're used, which is another question entirely. Yeah, and it's not just traffic engineers that have this faith in them, but at a certain level, planners do. Yeah. They rely on the judgment of their engineers who rely on the models. And then like, you know, decision makers and elected officials do as well. In any transportation planning process, there's always a certain level of deference to traffic engineers who often rely on these kinds of models. Because it gives kind of a technical veneer to whatever the outcome is. It's like, well, the model said it. This is the most complex model that our region invested probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars in. And that's what we're going to go with.
0: Yeah. That's one of those things that always bugged me when having to interface with traffic engineers during my admittedly limited time in advocacy. Like I remember, for example, there was a street in Toronto where there had been some people hit by cars and this was a residential street that had been widened over the years to take away people's front yards and now the houses were basically right up against the street but this was a residential street made into four lanes then there was this area you know the path to get to a school and a park and things like that and there was demand from the community to put a crosswalk there or a traffic light or something so that people could cross the street safely and I remember the traffic engineer coming in to weigh in on it. And it was all like, well, you know, the guidelines state that there's already a traffic light here, there's a traffic light there, and therefore we'd be within the 150 meters between lights and that would result in a in an unacceptable... And they use this very technical language to basically say, we don't want to slow down the cars, so fuck you. And it's like, you know, but it's spoken in this very technical way with these guidelines and these numbers and these level of service. And I listen to this and I'm just like, screw off, buddy. Like we're trying, (laughs) people need to cross the street. This is a residential street. But because it comes with this very technical language, it's hard to refute, right? Because you're kind of like, well, you know, you little people over here, you don't understand this complex system we're dealing with here. But at the end of the day, when you boil it all down, it's just moving as many cars as possible, right? That's what they're optimizing for.
1: Yeah, it's (laughs) the thing with pedestrian crossings is, especially maddening. There's a whole universally accepted, I don't know, maybe there are jurisdictions who do this differently, but there's a universally accepted methodology for kind of deciding if and when there should be a pedestrian crossing at a certain location and what kind of treatment should it be, you know, just a marked crosswalk or should have this kind of signage, or do you actually need some sort of what they call a yellow treatment, like a rectangular rapid flashing beacon, or like a red treatment, like a hawk signal or a half signal or something like that. But the numbers that go into it, it's completely maddening if you look at it. Because one of the numbers that goes into it is how many people cross that location right now. Mm-hmm. Right? And if there aren't enough, then you can't warrant a good treatment there. But it's kind of like the don't build a bridge somewhere where there aren't already like hundreds of people swimming across the river. Yes, right. Exactly. If they aren't demonstrating the demand by swimming across the river, you can't build a bridge yes. there. That's what it's like. Yes. If there aren't a exactly sufficient number like of people trying to cross the street at an obviously dangerous location, then. They must just not want to cross enough and they don't need a signal. It's bonkers stuff.
0: Well, I remember in Toronto, there was a warrants system. So they had like a point system. They called it the warrant system. And so you needed to warrant the treatment that was being done to the road. And the warrant system had these different requirements. And there was, you know, the number of cars that were going through and their level of service and their speed and the number of people crossing and all this kind of thing. But they also put in there like how many people got hit by cars, how many people Mm -hmm. were killed. And it's like, You know, guys, if we're getting to this point, we probably should have done something before these people got killed by cars, you know, as opposed to saying, well, you know, there was only one person killed by cars in the last two years there. So I don't know. That always seemed unethical, to be honest. But I think this is the thing with a lot of this traffic engineering discussion is that you've got these real problems of actual people living in a city trying to go about their lives and do things in a safe manner. And then you have these kind of abstracted discussions of numbers and models and guidelines that are like abstractly applied on top of this without kind of any understanding or even sort of like empathy for the situation on the ground.
1: Yeah, there's definitely this tension between like the quantitative and the qualitative. There's kind of that dichotomy up and down, like transportation planning and engineering. And often... You know it's the things that you can measure right those are the things that you actually do something about it's the things that generate performance measures like level of service or volume right. to capacity ratio or whatever those are the things that people go out and spend money on because they have a number that tells them they need to spend the money there you know with what you're talking about i mean the number that would come up is did someone die there or not it's one or zero right and right. then what you do sometimes see in cities is some elected official, a city councilor says, hey, let's go build like a hawk signal or some sort of crosswalk treatment at this place where someone got killed crossing the street and you kind of chase fatalities around. right? And it's understandable, but, but that's also probably not an optimal way to go about designing a transportation system. Uh, no,
0: absolutely not. So just for anybody who's not familiar, when you say level of service, what does that mean?
1: Oh, OK, sure. Yeah, level of service is probably the most commonly used way to evaluate roadway operations in my experience it's usually used at intersections and so it corresponds to the amount of quote unquote delay a car experiences at an intersection i'm not going to tell you the exact table but basically it's a through f a means level of service a that's good right it's like a report card that means you're not experiencing any additional delay at all and then f is probably cycle failure like you have to wait through a traffic signal more than one time, but really E or D are probably fine or even optimal for the urban environment, right? If you don't have congestion, yeah. like your city probably sucks in the first place, right? You've got a city where no one wants to be, right? If you right. have level of service A or B or C, for sure, that just means you overbuilt and <laughs> you, you, you wasted money building facilities you didn't need to build. And they're probably more dangerous because people are probably speeding on them because they're so empty all the time. Right.
0: And actually that Strongtown's article mentioned something about this as well. The quote here is, if the traffic engineer is forced to use a projection of future traffic they know is wrong, and if congestion is an intolerable condition that is also a ubiquitous foe, then the conservative thing to do when considering a transportation investment is to oversize everything. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I see done so often in North America is that traffic congestion is considered to be this critical scenario that you absolutely cannot have. And so therefore the only real solution is to overbuild everything. Yeah, you hit on something that is
1: <laughs> there's so many things that drive me crazy about this. There's this idea, which is, you know, it's kind of understandable on its face, but in traffic engineering, you use a conservative quote unquote approach up and down the line. So When you use traffic volumes as an input into whatever analysis you're doing, you don't just go get traffic volumes from an average day. You go get traffic volumes from like a 90th percentile day. You get it at peak hour in a busy season when like school's in session so that you make sure you're seeing the worst possible traffic you can see. And then it gets crazier than that. Like when you put it into your hourly model, you do something called peak hour factoring where you don't just take like the worst hour. You make sure you get the worst 15 minutes out of the worst hours. There's all this stuff that happens up and down the line in traffic engineering where you're taking a conservative approach because... You never want the outcome to be, oh, we underestimated the amount of traffic and now there's congestion. Right. So another kind of crazy making thing about it is in transit planning, you kind of do the opposite thing. You never want to overestimate ridership because that always looks bad. Right. And so you often underestimate ridership in transit planning. So we kind of take like the definition of a conservative approach in traffic is to overbuild everything and the definition of a conservative approach in like transit planning is maybe to risk underbuilding things
0: that's absurd
1: yep (laughs) it is
0: it's absolutely absurd so i remember from my limited education in civil engineering that you have failure conditions in civil engineering so if you are building a bridge for example you will determine how much capacity that bridge could hold and then you typically triple that, if I remember correctly. You see, you build it three times bigger. I think in some cases, it's five times bigger. But the point is, you build it much bigger than the highest load that you will expect, which makes sense when you're building a bridge or a building or something like that, right? Because it is a catastrophic condition if the bridge falls down. Mm-hmm. That's a very catastrophic situation because there could be a loss of life. There could be. A, there's certainly going to be a huge cost to that, like a monetary cost to that. But one of the things that always frustrated me about traffic engineering is that the way that civil engineers talk about critical conditions that they need to avoid, like the bridge falling down, is the way that traffic engineers talk about traffic congestion. And to me, I mean, that seems insane because traffic congestion is not the same as a bridge falling down, right? Like getting stuck in traffic is not the same as a building toppling over. And the way that's discussed, like, this is just this worst thing you could possibly have, and we must avoid this at all costs, seems insane to me, right? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) to an outsider, every conversation I've had with engineers is like, are you really? like talking in this way about yeah. getting stuck in traffic? It's built into the language, right?
1: That's what they call it. If it's a level of service F at a traffic signal, that generally means that you're not going to get through the signal on the first time, and they call that signal failure. So that's right. where the word failure comes in yeah
0: we're not talking about signal failure as in like yeah. the lights go out and somebody goes through a red and crashes right we're talking right. you have no, to no. wait a little longer like, <laughs> that, was,
1: that would be actual <laughs> signal failure i know
0: right <laughs> like when they talk about signal failure on a train that's a bad thing like the red signal goes out and yes. you go through it like that's signal failure that can result in a train crash and a derailment yes. but we're just talking you have to wait for a light That's not the standard accepted definition of signal failure.
1: It's really when you have to wait one minute more, that's (laughs) failure.
0: What was always absurd to me in these conversations is that traffic engineers in North America talk about these failure modes and these level of service. But at the end of the day, they're just talking about cars. They're not talking about, again, you know, you hear this all the time online. It's about moving cars as opposed to moving people. Because if you started optimizing for moving people, you sure as hell wouldn't put everybody in cars. But like this was something that was very frustrating to me in Toronto as well, where there was talk about, for example, transit signal priority for the streetcars. Like there's a streetcar line on Spadina Street in Toronto, which has a dedicated right of way, but does not have signal priority at the traffic lights, which is insane. Like this is like its own right of way in the middle of the road with the center stops and everything like this should be a super fast form of transportation, but it is painfully slow because it is stuck at every red light along the way. And I remember the discussion, I had it written down somewhere, and I wish I could have found it for this conversation, but I had the exact words that the engineer used. And it was this long technical explanation, the reason he used why they couldn't implement transit signal priority for these streetcars. And it was this, yeah, super long, convoluted, lots of technical language, but what it boiled down to is, we don't want to slow down the cars. Like it was basically a long way of saying, we're going to expect on the cross streets, there's going to be a bunch of car traffic and we can't slow them down at any cost. Yeah. And again, it's like, guys, like these streetcars, these new streetcars are carrying like 150 people on them, right? And you're talking about, well, you know, we'd be slowing down 15, 20 cars in a light cycle. Like who the hell cares? It just seems so bizarre to me. Yeah, no, I mean, to do transit signal priority... You have to take some green
1: time out of the signal cycle and figure out who to take it from. But yeah, it goes back to, (laughs) you know, is that failure? Probably not. And yeah, you really have to look at how many people are you serving? The software that you use to analyze intersections, it's all about vehicles, like how many vehicles got through. It's not how many people. So you have to kind of reverse engineer your metrics based on the vehicle type. And there are actually some cities who are, taking that approach or at least trying to take that approach. It's not as if traffic engineers are, or at least all traffic engineers are unaware of this. Yeah, of course. Some of them are. But yeah, like the easiest thing to do is just tell you what the model spit out. And the model really only accounts for vehicles. It doesn't account for like occupancy of vehicles.
0: This is my whole issue with all of these discussions that I have with traffic engineers is that it all just seems so absurd. And I've had these conversations. I've literally had this conversation with traffic engineers who are sympathetic to the cause, and they will admit, yeah, this is absurd, right? Like, of course, we should be considering the number of people on a vehicle or even not the current situation, maybe the situation we want. We want more people Mm -hmm. on bicycles. We want more people on transit. We want more people walking. And so we're going to ignore some of the current data in favor of the outcome we want. And they acknowledge that this isn't the way it is. But where those conversations always ended up going in my experience is that it would always go to, well, these are the guidelines and these are the metrics and they can't be changed. Like they're set in stone, like they were handed down by God on the, the you know, uh, it's just, it's absurd. Like the idea that, well, this is the standard is literally an answer that I was given. Yeah. But the standard was created by people, right? I right. mean, it was created by a bunch of boomers or something, but.
1: Well, yeah, it was created by people who have made it very difficult to change them because often they're in not even just like city code, but they could be in state statutes. They often are. They're in a variety of codified documents that are extremely difficult to change and require a political process to change. And and I think that's where things get stuck. And just to go back to your other point, yeah, this goes to my, my biggest issue with the traffic engineering approach is it's really all about projections of Current behavior and not about the world we want to live in. Like, I would just say, like, Portland, where I worked for a long time, like, the city and the region have what I think are reasonably achievable given the right conditions targets for like mode share, right. you know, that are part of like the climate action plans. Like, we want to have 30% of all Portlanders biking by 2040 or something like that. But they're not achievable if all we do is project current behavior and then build to accommodate the projected current behavior like you're never gonna get anywhere near those goals
0: right like but that's what we do well the crazy thing is of course the current behavior exists because of the infrastructure that was built Mm -hmm. for that behavior right like If we hadn't built everything for cars, this is one of these conversations that I hate getting in with people because there'll be some people that say, well, cars are inherently faster. You know, I live here and it takes me 35 minutes to drive to work, but it'd be over two hours on a bus. Therefore, cars are better. And I'm like, no, that just means your public transit sucks. But the reason that's the situation is because there's been all this infrastructure spent cars, like you're driving down these highways and these multi-lane strodes, and there's all of this infrastructure that was given there. If your city had never built those things, and if they had continued being a single lane road or a dirt road or something like that, and yet they had spent all that money on trams and subways and everything else, you'd have a very different story, right? So you can look at the city centers of places in Europe, for example, where you'd be crazy to drive through, right? And people do not drive through there if they're using their head at all. And you could look at that and say, well, obviously cars don't work because it's way faster for me to take the tram through the center of Amsterdam than it is to drive. But it's because it was built that way, right? I mean, that's where the behavior comes from. It doesn't just magically, it's not some sort of fundamental constant of the universe. It comes from the things we built. Right. I'd go back to
1: what you observed about your visits to Las Vegas, particularly during CES, where it does get busy, even though the streets are wide. You know, you do develop pretty horrendous traffic in certain locations, particularly around the Strip. And the convention center, yeah. And the convention, yeah. And so, but part of that is, like, what else are you going to do in Vegas? Like, the transit is, I don't know. <laughs> I not want to be a hypocrite. I lived there for a year without a car, and I took transit and walked. But people generally won't. I'm right. kind of an idiot.
0: <laughs> an idealist, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. What else are you going to do besides own a car and drive everywhere? I mean, it's kind of the rational choice given what the built environment is and what the transit service is.
0: Well, it's like if I had stayed living in my hometown of London, Ontario, Canada. The real London. I would own a car. I wouldn't ride bicycles and I wouldn't be taking the bus. Why would I? That's dumb. In fact, I don't do that when I go there. I still go with my parents move back there. And I go to visit them and I drive everywhere yeah. when I go there. I mean, why wouldn't I? The only time I don't is when I'm filming for not just bikes for a point, like the time I walked a kilometer to buy a bag of milk. But but I mean, yeah, of course, you do it because it's built that way. Las Vegas, though, drives me freaking nuts. And I don't even we should do a whole other podcast just on we Las can. Vegas sometime. We, we can just can. share stories. But that place drives me nuts because the vast majority of people who go to that place are going from the airport to the strip or the convention center and back. And that's it. Like there is literally and the strip is a strip. It's in a line, right? It's not spread out. It's in <laughs> one line.
1: Yeah, and you're it's like the choir. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just uh we should honestly do a podcast episode just where we talk about Las Vegas because that place, this is where I just bang my head against the wall with this stuff, right? It's set up so perfectly for transit. You think right? like a nice air conditioned train. From the airport I, yeah. to the Strip. It's,
1: everything's in one line. I know. Everything's <laughs> in one line. Like, what is it? Like 15 of the 20 biggest hotels in the world are there. Right. Like thousands and thousands of people who work in those places. Thousands and thousands of guests. But instead, they're <laughs> they're giving Elon Musk's company, like, carte blanche to build, like, these tunnels all over the place
0: that are, like, <laughs> I do know. All right, let's do another episode about Las Vegas. Yeah, that's that's a whole other (laughs) thing. (laughs) The one thing I did want to talk about here is that at the end of that Strong Towns article, they actually link to another article that is called WSDOT versus reality. (laughs) And I'll link this in the description too. So the DOT is the Department of Transportation. For anyone who's not aware, every state in the United States has a Department of Transportation, a DOT, and sometimes DOT, sometimes called DOT. Anyway they're the ones who are responsible for the state level transportation which usually includes the highways which can also include some of the highways and roads through cities as well but this particular article is funny if the outcomes weren't so bad so you were saying that sometimes they're basing these models usually basing these models on these historical data right on what's happened in the past but in the case of these wsdot traffic projections They're not even basing it on what's happening in the past. They just keep saying it's going to go up, even though it's been going down for years. Right. So (laughs) anyway, I'll link to this so that people can look at the graph, but it's absurd. It shows like a line going straight up into the right on a graph, and then the actual line goes down. And then the next few years later, they say it's going to go straight up again, and it continues going down. And a few years later, the projections are for it to go straight up again, and it continues going down. So like in this case, they're not even basing it off of, actual data. They're just making shit up. So where do you think this is coming from?
1: (laughs) It's funny, because I've seen that chart so many times, but it's been a while. I'm sure the same dynamic (laughs) is in play right now. It's so strange. I know people who work at WashDOT, And there are a lot of good folks there. But it comes back to what are the accepted methodologies for projecting future traffic? And if you're a traffic engineer, you don't just go by like trends over the last five years. Cause those can vary. There's a recession <laughs> or gas prices or whatever. So instead you use this very convoluted model that has all these very complicated assumptions about land use and where people are going to live and where people are going to work. And it's usually like a 20 or 25 year horizon. And that's what you use to project future traffic. So it's always going to tell you there's going to be more. That's the nature of a model. It might have some transit component in it, but it's going to assume that a very small number of people are going to be using transit because more aggressive assumptions or policies, honestly, haven't been integrated into the model. So that model is always going to tell you that traffic demand on the interstate is going to go up,
0: even though it's very obviously been going down. (laughs) Right, right. I look at this stuff and I just laugh. I mean, if 40,000 people in America weren't being killed by cars every year, it would be funny.
1: I don't know. Let me actually answer this a little bit differently because I'm talking about models and stuff. But I think there is a deeper story in that, which is I don't want to imply that there's a conspiracy.
0: I actually don't think there's a conspiracy either. I generally agree with Chuck that like these are generally good people, intelligent people. But it's one of these situations where sometimes you just get systems in place. Groups of yeah. people can be really dumb, even though the individuals are smart.
1: Yeah. The sense I get is that we don't update the methodologies to reflect what our actual goals and aspirations are, because I'm afraid it's kind of become a, gosh, I, don't, I want to say this sensitively, but it's kind of <laughs> like a... I love
0: how long it's taking for you to spit well, this out, to be honest. No, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm
1: always trying to be so <laughs> diplomatic. But it's almost like a dot employee employment program, right? It's like, we need tools that will tell us that things are going to continue to get worse so that we need to continue to plan and design and build more of the same infrastructure. State duties are set up to build freeways and highways, right? They're not set up for other kinds of transportation. So you do get this kind of circular logic, right? Where you have a model that tells you to build more stuff. You go build more stuff. You need to keep people employed. And so you continue to have a model that tells you to build more stuff.
0: Well, at the end of the day, the DOTs are paid to build highways, not to not build highways. And there's no other option.
1: What are they doing if they're not building highways? (laughs) I know, right? I don't know. I don't know what their purpose is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's such absurd outcomes. So I guess as we're getting near the end of this discussion here, because I know we could talk about this forever. So we're not going to talk about this forever <laughs> unless the Patreon for this becomes a lot bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Come on nebulous signups. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so what do you think is the path forward here? I really wish I knew more about how this was done in the Netherlands. I know that their modeling incorporates cycling and public transit a lot more. But like, what do you think the path forward is here for the United States?
1: I don't know. I mean, there are some cities and states, I mean, you can look at California, I think you can look at like Portland and Seattle, where the cities in particular have really taken a lead on downgrading things like level of service as far as the performance measures that determine what you go and build. But, you know, the success is limited because really at a federal level, which is where most of the funding for transportation infrastructure comes from, you know, we still have The same kinds of guidelines. Like all the level of service comes from the highway capacity manual, which is published by, I think, the National Academies, which is a federal body. So it's tough. I mean, you do eventually need something to happen at the national level. It's just not enough for states and cities to go their own way. Well, at least until Cascadia secedes from the United States, but (laughs) that's like a different podcast, I think. (laughs) I'm kind of a glass is half full person. I think. There are political leaders and and I think just people, advocates and like everyday people who I think will continue to promote the political changes that we need to see. And it's part of what I hope to do with my channel. What is it? I believe the children are our future, right? (laughs) (laughs) To quote, what, Whitney Houston? I don't know. know. (laughs) At a certain point, I'm even too optimistic for my own good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely the pessimistic side of things. I'm the guy that packed up to move to Europe because I was like, fuck all this stuff. I'm out of here. So <laughs> hey, I
1: did it for three months, at least. I'll probably go back. So
0: Yeah, that will be great. All right. Well, I think we'll probably cap it there. I think that was a great discussion. Again, we could talk about this forever. And I will have you on again to talk about more things around this, because I think there is so much to talk about when it comes to the way that our roads and streets and cities are designed and the outcomes of that, because this isn't in a vacuum. You can talk all you want about these numbers and calculations and formulas and all this stuff. And I did it in my own engineering education as well. But at the end of the day, there are people who need to live in this city and they need to experience it. And they are more than just numbers. There are real implications. To all of these things. So, just before we go, any commercials here, we should, you know, definitely people should check out City Nerd on YouTube. And you're also on Nebula as well, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I do enough self-promotion on my own channel. I don't think I need to do any more.
0: I think you've stopped doing the stadiums full of subscribers. Oh, is that right? <laughs> well, For anybody not familiar, if you're not familiar with City Nerd, you should be watching City Nerd. City Nerd on Nebula and on YouTube. But he used to take the number of subscribers he had and then say, well, this is the stadium that this number of people would fit in. But I don't think you're doing that. Are you out of stadiums? No,
1: I kind of ran out when I got to the University of Michigan, which... Does it hold like 110,000 or something like that? <laughs> People have asked me to bring it back, but use like a different comparison metric. So we'll see. Maybe quite do funny. In the future, but
0: whatever. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining Ray and I'll have you again, but that's great. Good conversation. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Jason. That's all we have today for The Urbanist Agenda, but if you just can't wait to hear the next episode, I recommend you sign up to Nebula, because every episode is uploaded there first. You can sign up at nebula.tv slash agenda, and doing so also supports this podcast. Nebula also gives you access to all of the other creators who are on there, which is now over 150 at this point. You'll find videos and podcasts and classes, but there are also Nebula Originals, which are high-budget productions by content creators you may already know on a whole wide range of educational subjects. If you sign up with our link, that's nebula.tv agenda, then you'll get a discount off a yearly membership. That's $20 off, bringing it down to $30 per year, which is honestly a hell of a deal for what you're getting. Thanks again for listening to The Urbanist Agenda, and maybe next time you'll be listening on Nebula and then you won't even hear this part.